Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. I'm not a tough guy. I knew I'm staying my ass inside, and the fucking FBI is on speed dial, bro. <laughs> not a fucking tough guy. <laughs> People would say things about snitching. I'm fucking snitching, bro. What are you talking about? Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, we're back in the beautiful place where it all started for us, the Harmony Hotel in Nosara, Costa Rica. Does that mean it's curtains for us after this week is over? You mean, have we been sandwiched into uh, our final, last farewell episodes? That's what I'm wondering. I mean, this is where it all started, and this is probably where it all ends. It's it, not a bad of, way to go out. No, it really you know? isn't. Yeah. <laughs> if, it had, if we had to end the podcast, this would be the place to do it. That's right. The only thing, you know, if we die in a horrible plane crash on the way home, I just hope that these uploaded to the cloud. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that archivists can, uh, can find, you know, somewhere how to access them and, and then decide whether or not because I don't know if you put this, but I, I put for all unedited episodes, raw audio to be burned. Yeah, so, yeah, me too. It's a good thing because it would be very awkward for only one side of the conversation. Well, I mean, you know, like it's a real ethical question whether or not they should honor my wishes or whether the world just deserves to hear some of our unedited um, episodes, I, raw audio, you know? You, like the unreleased Sam Harris audio that everybody was clamoring for. <laughs> Uh, you are, my friend, alluding to the fact that because of someone's ethical breach, we have the book that we are going to be discussing in the main segment, only because somebody was willing to tell Kafka's dead ghost to fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk about the that ethical dilemma maybe uh, when we lead off. Yeah, so we're going to talk about the trial. Franz Kafka's The Trial, and what we think, although we're not sure yet, will be a two-part episode, um, because there's a lot to talk about with that book. That's right, and we don't want to record more, because we're in fucking Costa Rica. (laughs) Yeah, exactly, in uh, the studio, which is very nice. Yeah, it's a very nice studio they have for us. Called Outpost. If if you ever stop by Costa Rica and you have to record a podcast. In a pinch. In a pinch. (laughs) Wouldn't it be funny if just like you're so addicted to podcasting that late at night it's like two in the morning and you just have this fiend, you're just fiending to record an episode and you just come up like a crackhead and like, can yeah. I can I rent out your studio? I just start doing opening questions and then like <laughs> responding to them as you. I'm Dave Bizarro. And <laughs> uh, that was more the nerd from The Simpsons, I guess, <laughs> than you. Was that what that was? 
All right, so we have to talk about something serious, though, in the opening segment. And I know it's usually more lighthearted, but... And I know that I've, I don't know, taken the piss on social psychologists <laughs> in the past. And, you know, like, I think often justified, maybe sometimes not justified. But I think now, you know, I, I have to rethink all my criticisms because your colleagues, your brethren... <laughs> Have, have have written a letter to end the ongoing as we are as we're recording anyway ongoing uh war invasion of ukraine they have written a letter your social psychologist colleagues to vladimir putin <laughs> uh, to just you know maybe rethink his current um aspirations regarding ukraine and you know what i just noticed is at the top of the PDF, at least that we have. I think it might've been taken down from its original site. But I think it, it definitely was, yeah. But it says, Psychologists for Peace. Like mm -hmm. they're like they're an official organization, <laughs> like the We Are the World. It wasn't like the We Are the World people. It was like, you know, Singers Against Hunger or yeah. something. <laughs> yeah, rock and rollers. You know, I don't often compare things to Sun City, but this is, this is I think, the closest that we've gotten in a long time. To, su to what? Sun City, the, when a lot of uh, rock stars refused to play Sun City because of the apartheid in South Africa. <laughs> <laughs> and there was a song, right? Like, ah, 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 ain't gonna play Sun City. <laughs> I, I do not remember that. <laughs> but yes, yes, this is a very, it's not even strongly worded. I, I, you know, I think, well, it's empirically rigorous and backed up. Right. Um, which so you don't I think, need strong words. I, exactly. Yeah. And I think, you know, often with, with world leaders, if you start, you know, aggressive or antagonistic, they might be uh, less likely to absorb <laughs> the information you're giving them. They so. might stop reading. <laughs> they might stop reading. Exactly. Um, but, Can I just say before I go on to, to lightly mock my colleagues, um, I'm not doing anything. <laughs> so I don't want to take away uh, if, if people are feeling desperate and need to, to feel like they, they're doing something. These people got together and they put together a letter. So I grant them that. They're in, in many ways better than me. Yeah. Um, and as far as I know, the address uh, <laughs> at the top is correct. But I don't. Do you think they put it in the mail? <laughs> I don't know. I, I like. I would love to. I don't know if that was covered in any of, in the stories about it, but uh, yeah, I don't know how they plan to get this letter into it. Maybe like CIA, they had to uh, give up one of their agents just so he would get um, this letter in carrier pigeons. All right, so should we just go through it? Um, yeah. So let's say that this is how many? It's like forty. I think forty psychologists, mostly from Europe. Mm -hmm. um, a, a few. Uh, from Latin America and a couple from from uh, the U.S., which is neither here nor there. But and I would assume I, this is purely speculation on my part, but I would assume they're older people, given the references that they <laughs> <laughs> that they put in the letter, the studies that they cite. They're uh, definitely tenured. <laughs> they, they were able to stop reading in 2012. Uh, yeah, 2012 being like really. <laughs> 1995 <laughs> yeah. uh, when you look up that study um okay so let's let's ask our audience to pretend that they are uh vladimir putin <laughs> yeah and they have just like a, a messenger has just run into their office yeah. and handed them 
uh, right. this paper and said, Mr. President, it's very important that you read this. Meanwhile, your country is, you know, facing sanctions. The ruble has collapsing. <laughs> so think about that as you're reading this. You've too. also poisoned about 89 people. <laughs> <laughs> 89 is extremely conservative, I think. Um, and yeah. And you just you're in the midst of an invasion that is going less smoothly than you perhaps predicted. Yeah. All right. So, Mr. President, we are contacting you to share with you our academic and practical knowledge about the consequences of initiating a war for the instigator. See, they're appealing to his self-interest. Yeah. And to offer a glimpse of a possible way out of such a perilous situation. We, ooh, <laughs> it's really important like, to, have, to nail that first sentence so that Putin doesn't stop reading right now. <laughs> You know, it's so I'm sorry. <laughs> we believe that we can all agree about the sad and dramatic consequences that war has for innocent citizens in the countries involved, as well as for soldiers conducting it. Physical injury, psychological trauma, death. Yeah, I think we could all agree. <laughs> that has been known to happen in right. wars. Yeah. Well, you might not know. Despite that, for political leaders, the instigation of a violent fight with external forces often offers the attractive perspective that such a situation of insecurity and feelings of threat increases one's own citizen's national identification and admiration for a powerful leader. Ah, so he's saying, so they're saying like, look, we know that war is like, you want to be a wartime president. Right. And to, to back up that empirical claim that feelings of threat increases one's own citizen's national identification, they cite uh, Sharif et al. 1961. Now, I looked this up. And um, it's the very famous robber's cave experiment. Yes. Um, Muzaffar uh, Sharif argued that intergroup conflict occurs when two groups are in competition for limited resources. This theory is supported by evidence from a fav famous study in investigating group conflict, the robber's cave experiment. Here's the key takeaways. In the robber's cave experiment, 22 white 11-year-old boys were sent to a special remote summer camp in Oklahoma Robbers Cave State, State Park. This is the study that they're citing. 11, sorry, 22 11-year-old white Oklahoma kids were sent to a state park in Oklahoma and then did think, developed attachments to their groups, uh, chose names for their groups, the Eagles and the Rattlers, um, and then had competition where group between the groups, prejudice began to become apparent between the two groups. Now, obviously we hope that um, Putin, you know, goes to the actual study, but um, there is a, there is a, uh, uh, very helpful summary for this on the website Simple Psychology. So here's where I think this letter becomes, at first it's just, oh, that's lame, but there are these old, like, social psychologist dudes who are like, we should stop a war if right. we can. But that, them citing this, <laughs> like it has relevance to what uh, Vladimir Putin takes himself to be doing here, uh, like 22 white kids in Oklahoma is going to somehow, you know, have relevance. Just like now it almost seems like it's a joke. Uh, apparently, Tamler, you're not familiar with the, uh, the, the clear evidence that was put forth by Sharif in 1961. The Rattlers and the Eagles started treating each other pretty badly. Uh, and... The, Sharif found a way out. He, he made their bus break down and they had to join together and fix it. So are you telling me that this is not relevant? Is this... <laughs> that this uh, summer experience for these 22 Oklahoma kids might not be 
immediately, it might not be immediately obvious to Putin what, <laughs> how that bears on his own decisions uh, during the crisis. Well, as you say, I, I only hope Mr. Putin actually reads the original paper because uh, listening to you summarize it is not doing it justice. I mean, <laughs> I, like, I didn't say anything inaccurate, did I? <laughs> no. no, but you emphasized white. And, you know, I just want to point out they're white, too, you know. It's yeah, like no, generalizability. That's true. Yeah. No, no, I didn't mean I wasn't <laughs> saying that I was uh, making this about race. You, you're making it about race. Maybe a little bit. Okay. So, such effects of increased national identification, the letter continues, and leader admiration are, however, of a short-term nature. <laughs> they are usually then replaced by mid to long-term negative effects. See, they're not certain. It's not, they're, not, they're not making... You know, crazy right. claims that they know it's midterm. Or well, long. no, yeah, right. So now it's actually that study is meant to show that Putin might feel powerful and that his own citizens might respect him. Yes, more. right, right. right. Yeah. Um, but beware, because they're usually then replaced by mid to long term negative effects for political leaders who are perceived to be responsible for the war. It's bringing okay. in the attribution literature. Yep. This letter informs you about some of these effects, colon, and now some bullet points. <laughs> <laughs> do you want to do, do you take some sure. bullet points? Citizens on both sides in a war suffer from national isolation. Human beings are dependent on an appropriate mixture of the familiar and the novel. They simultaneously look for inclusion and differentiation. Brewer, 1991. Did you look that up? No, I did not. I did. <laughs> uh, the social self on being the same and different at the same time. Yeah. Uh, by Marilyn Brewer. Most of social psychologists' theories of self fail to take into account the significance of social identification in the definition of self. Social identif identities are self-definitions that are more inclusive than the individuated self-concept of most American psychology. A model of open distinctiveness is proposed in which social identity is viewed as reconciliation of opposing needs for assimilation and differentiation from others. So, I mean, I know I was joking about how... Um, you know, maybe the Sharif um, et al. 1961 might not be as relevant as the psychologists believe. But this one, I mean, it's so clear that Putin, even Putin is going to be like, oh, OK, right. I forgot about Brewer 1991. Right. This is so, no. So this the, this paper is the theory is known as optimal distinctiveness theory. And yeah, it says exactly, uh, you know, what Tamler said, which is sometimes you want to be different and sometimes you want to be the same because being the same sometimes feels good, but being different also sometimes feels good. <laughs> and so take that, Putin, take, like withdraw your troops. Yeah. With like just while there's still time, you know, uh, yeah. You want to take the next one? Yeah. Wars create severe economic problems up to full blown crashes on both sides. Citizens typically compare their current economic situation with the situation before the war began and soon recognize that they are losing out. Feelings of deprivation are usually the basis for resistance, protest, and revolution against existing state institutions. Foster and Matheson, 2012. Okay, do you know this stuff? No, that's the one I don't know, actually. Um, abstract double relative deprivation, which has been virtually ignored in research on relative de deprivation, was expected to predict women's collective action over and above egoistic and collective deprivation. The role of sociopolitical forces in perceiving deprivation and participation in action was also investigated. So this is just female students, only female students, this or They need to balance out the robber's cave study that was only boys. Right. That's true. Uh, and now, 
I don't know um, Putin's reputation when it comes to the ladies, but, <laughs> you know, maybe this, I mean, I don't know if this is what they're thinking, but uh, maybe they, maybe, you know, he, he may want uh, women not to protest and revolt against him. Right. Yeah. You know, the, that their sons are dying wasn't enough of a predictor. Uh, but they might have feelings about it. That's anecdotal. <laughs> it's, it's just, uh... I, you know, I feel terrible being this snarky about it, but I, there is a point to the to the snark that I that we'll get to. I promise, because you're uh, taking this very seriously well, in a way that's like. Well, I suggested like... it. I suggested it. I'm just saying there is, uh, I know, a level of snarkiness that can be hard to listen to when there's a war going on. But there's a point that I there. This is I think deserving of mockery, and we're gonna get like I just right. want to. And there's a deep moral purpose yeah, to it. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Good. Um, <laughs> so okay. So point two was, don't don't you know that war might make people uh, have economic difficulties, and they're gonna start revolting against you? <laughs> Women. Women, uh, especially. at least. We yeah. don't know about men. The research has to be done. Yeah. <laughs> Further research. Mm -hmm. yeah. The conduct of war often involves active misinformation about the success of one's own troops and losses of the enemy, about the moral superiority of one's own group, and the damnable motivations of the opposite side. Uh, Taj fell 1977. <laughs> I, I don't think I looked this one up. Um, yeah, it's some, some in-group-out group shit, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, but this is where Putin starts to think, well, am I attributing falsely kind of motives to Zelensky and the you know, Ukrainian uh, leaders where maybe, you know, like that's some sort of bias, uh, in-group bias that I'm feeling right now, you know? I, there's just this deep irony about like, to, like pointing out that misinformation is involved in <laughs> Putin himself. <laughs> KGB, like, <laughs> military. They tell us about misinformation. They're telling us. <laughs> Who are these people? <laughs> right, the creation of such a world consumes resources, and leaders end up in isolation within a bubble of yaysayers, always endangered by the threat of being unmasked. Like, now, I don't know if this is an illusion, but Co Putin is apparently, like, paranoid about COVID. Oh, oh, they're using some, yeah. they're using some psyops themselves. <laughs> exactly. The real social psychology isn't in the citations. That's what this is. <laughs> this is just CIA. Like, <laughs> this has CIA written all over it. Exactly. Finding oneself in a situation of maximum insecurity about what is right and wrong and uncertainty about the future activates citizens' desire for explanations. <laughs> this is a funny one. Festinger 1954. It's just, it's just, was that just the cognitive dissonance book? It's just the. Was that. Is 1954 the book? <laughs> but that's also like. You know, if you start. If you invade like a neighboring country, the citizens might want more information about what's going on. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's a social comparison uh, book. Yeah. Basically, <laughs> a theory of social comparison processes. Um, uh, it, this. It's like. You know, when you're doing a report in high school and you know you just need some parenthetical references to make it sound like you, like you know what you're talking about? But these are like emeritus professors. <laughs> the, the, these, like, some of these studies are like, like 70 years old. Yeah, and some of them aren't even studies. This will ultimately end up in a perception of reality as it actually is. People will discover who is responsible for starting the war. 
and for all the consequent suffering, <laughs> injuries, and death. So is this like trying to figure out what this is supposed to be saying to Putin? Is, is, is the assumption that Putin might think that the Ukrainians started it and that they're responsible and because of the misinformation and so... But like people will find out. Eventually, Putin, you know, you're... Talking, people the, haven't even found <laughs> out why JFK was killed. Ask not for <laughs> whom the bell tolls, Putin. <laughs> <laughs> it tolls for the yeah no it's true nobody like i mean people have found out who killed uh kennedy it's, no, we why? don't know which, why. which agent the processes described above often generate an increasing application of state power and brutal repression but isn't that what he's going for <laughs> that's what like isn't he like oh sweet this he's is like, backed oh, up this oh. is backed up by french and raven 1959 yeah he's probably psyched about that yeah. it's like probably going to quote that to his <laughs> you know cabinet however though you see you didn't read the however however such uh repression also ends up with increased rejection isolation and physical endangerment of the political leaders perceived to be responsible you know who didn't take this kind of advice who napoleon <laughs> and that's and look at what happened to him exiled to some island yeah, that's why i put this that's the way hitler uh, you know yeah. ate that gun oh no he just went to your country argentina <laughs> lived out like a long natural flourishing life uh just shaved his mustache and nobody recognized him yeah. that was i mean even i have to admire like the just the simplicity of that kind of genius move thing okay everyone so, knows me by my mustache <laughs> So here we get to the to the final. So you know, you always want a, a plan of action. You you want to give a call to action, a way out. You know, they've they've set up the dilemma. Like if he keeps going down this path, he's going to end up maskless. You know, in yeah. a bunker. You know, a in lot. a spider hole like Hussein. Just when the new variant is coming, <laughs> right? So the so the letter ends. What can be done to mitigate against such a predictable, disastrous development? From our psychological point of view, the primary recommendation. <laughs> is to immediately stop shooting, stop bombarding, stop fighting, and stop killing. Think again about the reasons for your decision to go to war and what can ultimately be achieved with this violence for the Russian people as well as for you personally. Think again about the alternative of a peaceful coexistence with neighboring countries. Think again about the minimal conditions for ending up in a durable peace agreement. And above all, remain open for negotiations. Yours faithfully. Yeah. So... I'm assuming that by the time we release this episode, he will have withdrawn all troops from Ukraine. If he gets the letter. just kind of sent an apology. Well, the letter like, was taken down, so how do we know he's going to get it? Well, I think it was taken down because of, like, people were worried about something exactly like what is happening right now. <laughs> that's my, that's my <laughs> prediction. I'm, I'm for very why. sorry, professors, doctors, Rolf Vendick <laughs> and Dr. Ulrich Wagner. Um, all right, so what's the... Because I didn't know, really, that there was a deep moral purpose other than I think there, it is just moral to make fun of social psychologists. <laughs> like no, the, you know, what I, where, where I wanted to go with this in the, after mocking it is there is a profound... I read this sincerely. So I, I'm, I take it that, that this letter was written with all sincerity and signed with all sincerity. They got together. They said, what can the literature tell us about this? It just seems to me so hubristic to think that this research could have an effect on a world leader, that it that if shared, it would actually make a difference, that the research itself is conclusively saying anything about these processes. Well, that's the 
you know, one of the most absurd aspects of it. Well, to the point that I want to write an open letter to these people to say, how could you get into this mindset to think yeah. that, that this stuff is actually that relevant? Yeah. Like it's, it's because I, I really am taking it at face value that this is a sincere, like, oh, look, like, have you read Sharif, you know, 1961? Yeah. Where it's like, really? This is worse than nothing. Yeah, it's definitely like, worse. That's why we are better. <laughs> That's why morally. We're morally better. But like that any of these points required a reference to be, you know, to be powerful. Like, do you know that, you know, war ends in death, dear, dear Herr Putin? But it is, that is just a tick that psychologists have, and maybe scientists in general, of every time they make a kind of an obvious point, they just randomly select some studies, like, yeah. uh, and, and then just, you know, like, and it could be like Kant, 1751 yeah. or something like that, yes. you know? Uh, it's just like it just like automatically gives this veneer of this isn't just us talking here this is <laughs> this was 22 white oklahoma kids do you want to know a dirty secret about i think most <laughs> most psychology well probably most most anybody who writes papers so you're probably in on it um if you get cited you know like our currency is to get cited yeah right? If you get cited, sometimes you, you get you, you see a new paper, you look and see that they cited you. A lot of the times, what they're saying you said isn't really what you said. Right. But how many times does anybody ever contact that original author and say, "Hey, by the way, I think you yeah. should pull that reference." Uh, right. You know, I didn't really say that. No, we like being cited. So, 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 it just sort of continues the cycles. If so, if you a good, I think a really good exercise for students is to take a review article, look up all of the things that are cited and what the claims are that they're being cited for, and just see. Just do a little like code for how many of them like really say what they say. I've been cited as saying the exact opposite of what my paper said. Right, I remember. I think we did an episode on it. <laughs> uh, like, I'm assuming Sharif, Musafir Sharif, I'm assuming he's been dead for yes, like 40 has. to 50 years. Yes. But, but I imagine H he wouldn't want to be... His uh, H index still... His H index lives on. Does this count as a citation? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> like, do you get from Google Scholar, like, your, uh, your paper has been cited? <laughs> if it did, I would just be writing open letters, sending my shit to everyone. <laughs> All right, so we should do an open letter to psychologists for peace. <laughs> the hubris and the absurdity of this letter has raised our indignation, and people who the, who are the targets of indignation from others tend to be more dehumanized, <laughs> according to... Oh God. Yeah, I feel like you're you're teasing, but also revealing the fact that we're going to do another opening segment right after this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's true. We're in this studio for probably not that much longer. So, but it's like this. You should have this humility, at least, to know. You know, it does really sound like these these researchers have not even paid attention to the fact that things are hard to replicate in social psychology. And as much as I defend, you know, I've been adamant about saying like. Look, replication is good, but generalizability is is not as big a concern as some people th seem to think. So long as you point out that what you're studying is is a narrow band of people, and you're hypothesis testing, like I'm I'm on record saying all that stuff. It's like these people though have never really it, all of that just went by, and they're perfectly okay. fine citing studies with 22 people. Yeah, and and, and and generalization was just assumed. Yes. Like that's just how assumed. the Stanford Prison Experiment like could be cited and used and employed in yeah. all those contexts. And I fell for it. 
Yeah. Um, Sucker. I know. We all knew. <laughs> you all knew all along. <laughs> you psychologists for quote unquote peace. Psychologists for deception and we career advancement. We are the world. <laughs> we are the children. Given that we're in a studio, a real studio here, like I feel like just breaking out in song. Yeah. Psychologists for peace. We're going to make a beat. I, mean, I can make a beat for Putin. Stop bombing boom, boom, Ukraine. Boom, boom. Podcasters and beat makers for peace. Yeah, know. but seriously, Putin, if you're listening to this, yeah, just stop. Just stop it. Like it's just gonna end. This gonna this could end either badly or really fucking badly with thing if you start feeling like you have nothing to lose. Right. Uh, Retzinger at all, 1942. <laughs> <laughs> Do you feel a little bit bad taking war so lightheartedly? Yeah, of course. But like, you know, what are you going to do? You can't. You, we, we laugh to keep from crying. That's my motto for life. My people would make fun of the Holocaust. You know, <laughs> like that's just it's the gallows humor is like Jewish currency. That's it is true. in addition to just all the other currencies we control. <laughs> <laughs> that's what we have to end there. We have to end right there. Uh, we'll be right back to talk about Franz Kafka thinking of great Speaking of great Jews, uh, uh, <laughs> the trial. Dave, I'm feeling a pleasant buzz right now. I don't know if you can tell. It's a, well, I, I assume you're not drinking because it's actually kind of early in the day. It's a so. little early. Well, actually, I am drinking, but I'm not drinking alcohol. Um, oh, once. are you? Are you drinking the tea? I am drinking for the first time ever kratom tea. Wow. Yes, from Super Speciosa, our newest sponsor, or one of our newest sponsors um, this time. I'm excited. Yeah. I'm excited about that. I, I like the tea. I, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a nice buzz. It's not make, it's, it's relaxing. It's energizing, but I don't feel at all tired. Um, this shit is good. That's good. You know, uh, so yeah, we're talking about Super Speciosa Kratom. And I was recalling that like a few years ago, you were the one who first put me on the Kratom. Like I had never heard of it. I, and, and I honestly don't remember how I heard about it. It is, it was one of those weird things where it's, most people just have no idea what you're talking about if you yeah. mention Kratom. But I think both of us over the last few years have become uh, quite enthusiastic about Fans. this. this uh, what do you, it's a... What is Kratom? It is a, it's a super leaf. Yeah, an all-natural ancient super leaf. <laughs> that is related to the coffee plant. Um, I don't know how, how that relation... Uh, <laughs> they're could, they're like third sense. cousins. <laughs> it's been used in Thailand for centuries. It just gives you this nice buzz. You know, if you get the dosage right... You're not feeling impaired in any way. You just feel a little more relaxed. And it goes well with a nice glass of wine sometimes. That's based pers uh, personal preference. Super Speciosa has only one ingredient, pure kratom leaf. Now, that's not true about some kratom brands where they do try to mix it with, with other things. And all of Super Speciosa's batches come with certified lab reports so you know exactly what you're getting. I don't know, like, did you pour over the lab report? Dude, I was, I was going to say, you know exactly what you're getting if you know how to read a lab report. <laughs> no, but I did not. <laughs> I did not read 
did a lot of prior I, trusts. I did but I, I will just, say they are the only one that uh, come with a lab report. Yeah. However useful that might be. And, um, you know, we just got a nice package with powder, capsules, tablets, and teas. Those, Super Speciosa offers all of those. And um, like I said, I'm just trying tea for the first time, and I'm liking it. That's awesome. I've only ever done the capsules. But I will say this, like it gives you, Kratom gives you a nice feeling and there are different kinds of Kratom. There's there's uh, different colors of Kratom, which I, I guess are different the stages of the plant. You're racist but... if you only <laughs> do the white Kratom. That's right. You should. I think. Um, all, all Kratoms matter is what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, the way I treat it is like, look, this is not, you know, this is not an FDA medicine or anything like that. This is an herbal supplement. I've treated it much like I, I drink mate, which is a, a Argentinian tea that gives me like energy. It, that is, although it's caffeine, it feels a little different than, than coffee. And this, I treat it like that. But honestly, it works as a painkiller. And I've had issues throughout the past few years with some pain from like uh, just chronically sitting at my desk and Kratom works. I mean, so it feels good. Exactly. If you want to try Kratom, if you haven't tried it, uh, Super Speciosa is a great place to go. For one reason, they give you 100% satisfaction uh, or your money back guaranteed. So if you order from them and you try it and you don't like it for any reason, uh, you'll get all your money back. But on top of that, if you try Super Speciosa Kratom now, you'll get 20% off as a listener of our podcast. All you have to do is go to getsuperleaf.com slash VBW and you'll get that 20% off with the promo code VBW. That's getsuperleaf.com slash VBW and use promo code VBW for 20% off. Our thanks to Super Speciosa for sponsoring this episode of Very Bad Wizards. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. This is the time where we like to thank all the listeners and all the people who get in touch with us and interact with us in all the different ways that you do. You know, we're here 
uh, we were just at the Harmony Hotel in Nozara, Costa Rica, which was uh, a really nice example of people who uh, listened and appreciated our podcast hooking us up with um, with something pretty special. Um, but a lot of you know, a lot of the guests there that attended our event. They weren't actually fans of the podcast in that... Uh, well, you it, make it sound like they were like haters of the podcast. No, no, it's, no. It's just they didn't know what the podcast was. They just was. didn't know about the podcast. I'm not a fan of Tamler Summers. <laughs> we're not, we're not <laughs> fans. <laughs> yeah. Not a fan, actually. Um, no, no, no. They just didn't know about it. And it's funny, like, I have gotten so used to in when I'm with you, just kind of interacting with people who, who get our jokes. And if I call you a Kantian <laughs> right. or an anti-Semite or something like that, they'll, they'll get it, you know? <laughs> so uh, I, I like, it was, it was weird adjusting back to, Oh wait, these people don't know who we are. And right. so, <laughs> so they didn't get our inside jokes. Yeah. They're not going to get our inside jokes, but it also made me appreciate all the more <laughs> the uh, the community of people who for whatever reason have been with us long enough to get our references and just the internal humor to the podcast um even when we even forget where the original joke was, <laughs> came from i think you texted me once like why do i call you a content again <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. I, re- I know why i call you an anti-semite because you hate, you hate <laughs> yeah, Jews, right but yeah. <laughs> Now, that one's the, the Kantian one. I'm not sure what the origin story of that is, but I'm. But I think a listener enlightened me uh, at some point. Also, calling me an anti-Semite, I, I got to say, a little more risky in a <laughs> novel audience than uh, calling me a Kantian. Wait, did I? I don't think I. Did. No, no, you didn't. Yeah. Okay. Good. Uh, in any case, uh, if we really appreciate. Everybody, whether you're new to the show or old to the show, interacting with us, if you would like to do that, you can email us, verybadwizards at gmail.com. You can tweet at us, at Tamler, at Peas, at verybadwizards. You can uh, like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, and you can join the lively community on reddit um the very bad wizard subreddit you know our last episode on panpsychism one of our most heavily commented on reddit episodes which i i have i haven't even been on reddit what what was the reaction um i mean i didn't go through all of it because we were away and you know Costa Rica, but I just saw that it had like a hundred and something comments. And I think most of them are on like the actual topic, you know, pan, uh, panpsychism and whether it is just terminological. You know, I think some people disagreed with our take that it, that there wasn't much actual substance to the view. It was just more a different way of describing the same issues that the, you know, the, uh, materialists describe, but, um, you know, and, and, and I, I looked at it more early on and I thought there was some interesting, there was an interesting case to be made that we were a little bit, um, or maybe overly dismissive of some yeah. of that stuff. So, yeah, well, uh, I knew we were going to get, uh, people to write about consciousness. People care about consciousness more than most topics in yeah. philosophy. 
If you want to support us in more ways than just commenting on Reddit, more tangible ways, you can do so by going to our Very Bad Wizards support page, verybadwizards.com, and just click on the support tab. There you'll see the various ways in which you can support us. You can give us a one-time or recurring donation uh, via PayPal. <clears throat> you can buy some swag. You can buy uh, t-shirts, hoodies, mugs. Finally, you can become one of our beloved Patreon supporters. Um, if you if you do, you'll get a few perks. So at $1 and up, you'll get all ad-free episodes and you'll get uh, compilations of my beats when I put them out. Um, at $2 and up, you'll get bonus segments. Uh, we should have some coming up. Um, I think we're going to do one soon. Finally, on the uh, anime uh, Millennium Actress. Uh, at $5 and up, you get to vote on an episode topic. You get to, you get access to our five part series on the brothers Karamazov. You get access to my intro psych, uh, lecture videos and a couple of Tamler's lectures on Plato's symposium. And finally at $10 and up, you get to ask us anything. So not only do you get the video and audio versions of the Ask Us Anything, you get to ask us questions. And up until now, I'll keep saying it until it's not true. We've answered every single question that we've been asked. And then the next, uh, the next one that we're about to release, probably by the time this goes up, is um, going to be live. It's the only one we've recorded live in. I mean, they were all live, but we've recorded them in person. We were face to face. We were in the bungalow that Dave was staying in, the courtyard of that um, in Costa Rica. And it will be, we have a special guest editor, Eliza Summers. So That's right. She's uh, uh, tasked with making our video uh, a little more interesting. Uh, hopefully, yeah. I haven't seen it yet, so I want to make any promises. But she knows what she's doing. Yes, she does. Um, and I forgot to mention that $2 and up, you also get uh, the Ask Us Anything segments uh, just a month later. So there's there's a little lag. You'll get the audio. Um, so yeah, thank you to everybody for uh, your support. We very much appreciate it. All right, let's get to our main topic for today. And this is the first in what probably will be a two-part discussion of Franz Kafka's The Trial. Um, a book that was written in 1915, is that right? Published in 1925, a year after uh, Kafka's death. Right. Is it the case that most of Kafka's stuff was published after his death? I think he published some stories, yeah. but he did not publish any of his novels. He wrote three novels, The Castle, The Trial, um, which we're going to discuss, and America with a K which I don't know that much about, but I think that's that one was more unfinished than the other ones. The oh, castle yeah. is actually pretty well flesh, fleshed out. It just sort of stops. He, this one has a, the trial has a, a, an ending uh, that right. you presume is the ending that Franz Kafka <laughs> right. intended, but uh, my memory of the castle is that although it's very well laid out, it just kind of stops. Yeah, and even with the trial, uh, there were editorial decisions that had to be made about how it should be structured. And uh, and it was, turns out, in different notebooks, he had written 
chapters in different notebooks and it was it was combined uh, to make the final novel after his death but all of my point is just that that was probably the end there's clearly a lot yeah. of missing the chapter is called the end uh, i mean <laughs> i assume because you know the editor took some liberties apparently putting fragments together sometimes taking them out but yeah, it, it, it seems like there's no other place for that story to go. Uh, spoiler alert, if you haven't read the trial, then with uh, Joseph K.'s death. Yeah. So do you want to talk about why we have the trial, this very famous novel, to even talk about and to read and to discuss forever? Yeah, I'm going to read. So the, the version of the trial that we both read, because there are a few different um, uh, translations, just so you know, it's translated by Brian Mitchell. And the opening of the publisher's notes, it opens with this quote, Dearest Max, my last request, everything I leave behind me in the way of diaries, manuscripts, letters, my own and others, sketches, and so on, is to be burned unread. Yours, Franz Kafka. He had written that to his friend, uh, Max Broad, um, who then <laughs> published it a year later. Yeah. <laughs> now, so the the backstory, at least as Broad tells it, is that he didn't think Kafka really wanted him to burn them because if he did, he wouldn't have asked Max Broad <laughs> he, uh, because he knew that Max Broad would publish his, his works. Be, and Max Broad says he knew that because I told him that straight <laughs> up. Right. But that is still the final request. And I assume a Kantian like you just thinks that we should not be reading this book. Nobody should be like endlessly interpreting in it and being inspired by it. And it's, it's not the Kantian in me. It's more like the, the loyal person, the person with honor who, who has bonds and commitments that, you know, that, that uh, death cannot tear apart. Well, I mean, the, the, the utilitarian like you, you know, <laughs> just that. A simple, simple-minded utilitarian. <laughs> like, like morality is an algorithm. No, I, I think it's actually an open question, which is the more honorable choice here, because I think Max Broad clearly recognized its greatness. He, this is a, a yeah. novel that is probably the thing he's most well-known for, Franz Kafka, and it has brought, and just publishing all of this stuff that he didn't publish, has brought Kafka a level of honor and fame that certainly nobody would know, even know who he is. Right, but Kafka doesn't know that. No. Right. Right. Uh, well, I mean, depending on <laughs> depending what, what, what the afterlife uh, situation is, and maybe his ghost knows. <laughs> to me, it really does turn on whether there is truth to Broad's assertion that he knew that Kafka that that Kafka knew that he would be somebody to disregard, you know, and I can see being an insecure artist who who is so unsure that you kind of you kind of leave it to to a friend who who might have an eye as to whether or not this stuff is good or not, but right. you don't really want to show it to them while you're alive because um, he could. Well, I don't I don't know the circumstance of Kafka's death. He, I know he was young, but it's tuberculosis. He, he could have burned it himself, right? And and apparently he did burn some of his own stuff. I didn't know that. Really. Yeah, yeah. I, I, that's what I read. I could be wrong. Um, and so so it does leave the question of Kafka's intentions open a little bit. And you do want to sometimes say, look, your insecurity as an artist should not be what dictates whether the world should see your art. Yeah, given, you know, and, and, and this is one of those, I don't know, like Gauguin-like questions too, because I think just its undeniable greatness 
justifies, you know, even if it had been a kind of promise that he had made or something like that, it would justify breaking it just because it's so great. But as I think you pointed out when we were having dinner the other night, he didn't necessarily know it was going <laughs> right. to be a phenomenon. No. Uh, Max Broad. I mean, he, he might have suspected it, but you just don't know. You can't tell. And especially something like this, which is really its own style of story of novel there's really there's a reason why the 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 term it's a cliche but kafka-esque exists and it's because he invented a kind of style that is so distinctive it's just him um given that it's this unique vision yeah he couldn't have known that it was great i'm sure he thought it was right yeah yeah i think the decision needs to be made case by case there are artists who die and have left a whole bunch of earlier work uh, I only know music, but like Jay Dilla left uh, just a storage house full of old beat tapes. And there is actually debate as to whether or not he thought they were good enough to be released or whether he was just a pack rat. And so there's been some accusations that there people are just trying to make money off of his unreleased work. That would be the ugliest thing. Like if Max Broad was just like, I can make some money publishing this. Um, you know, yeah, would, yeah, and I don't think that's the case, but I don't know. I, yeah, who knows? But in a straight up utilitarian way, I don't mind. Like, I'm glad it was published. I don't know. If also I told you... It's just not- an aesthetic, like, vision of morality, too. Like, you want greatness, great works to be, to exist and to be poured over. And Yeah. Yeah. Who knows what we've lost by people honoring wishes of their dead friends. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'll just tell you right now that I probably won't burn any of your beats even if you ask me because i'll know that you don't really want me you won't be able to find them like because it'll require you getting into a computer and navigating folders Uh, Um, i'd do some mr robot shit (laughs) didn't that happen with um uh atticus finch the woman who wrote uh to kill mockingbird oh harper lee yeah harper lee she there was a posthumous book published yeah to not great reviews right yeah 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 exactly that could have been you (laughs) know yeah and she had left this just undeniable classic that yeah like until recently everybody in high school read (laughs) 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 but uh yeah so apparently looking up prince eight thousand songs Jesus Christ, Eight thousand. these 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 people are workaholics like yeah. kafka apparently was too he was just incessantly writing incessantly what, what i'm sort of curious about with the trial given that there's 10 years between his death and him writing it is yeah what happened there he just was on un- right that seems <laughs> seems like a pretty decent indicator that he had no interest in, like he hadn't even collected them together yeah. In fact, the, although there were chapters that were pretty clearly the same chapter, they weren't numbered. And so there were editorial decisions just about what order of the chapters. Right. Right. Be. As you point out, the end has to be the end because there's nothing to indicate <laughs> that yeah. like his it ghost came continue. back. But, yeah. but the other ones. Yeah. So what did you think of it overall? I mean, it's an amazing book. Like, I think I have very little memory of reading it. I'm pretty sure I read it in college, but um, I love it. I loved it. I mean, it's a particular kind of absurdity that that just feeds that <laughs> feeds my soul. It like it scratches some kind of itch. It feels like life feels yeah. in a way that obviously, literally, can't be. You know, but it feels like what it feels like to live. Yeah. Yeah. No. Exactly. <laughs> Um, yeah, I think it's a total masterpiece and actually reads. And f- if you haven't read it, listeners, you should absolutely read it. It's not very long. Yeah. And it, in spite of all the 
things we were just talking about, I think it's a pretty cohesive novel that has, uh, you know, a, a, a clear arc yep. of Joseph K and sort of his his mindset, his mentality, where he is emotionally about all of it. And it's just, and it's really funny. Like it is, yeah. and especially I would say the first half, but actually, I mean, it stays funny almost until the last, pretty much until the last couple of chapters where it turns somber and a lot of the just absurdist humor of it is lacking even though you still have the absurdity in the in in the cathedral chapter it's not it, it's not played for laughs i think that, right you know, shit starts getting real you know a lot of the descriptions in the scenes are as absurd as they are before but you can tell things are culminating the, the characters in the earlier chapters they're they're all so completely sure of themselves <laughs> in ways that are totally unhelpful to joseph k and and that a lot of the comedy just comes from their interactions with him but the priest in the last chapter isn't like that at all right and in fact it seems like he probably is trying to, to help joseph k yeah to some, and to some extent although we could talk about that when yeah. we get there to tie it to something we've talked about before i'm Still amazed that Gogol's The Nose was written so early because there yeah. is a lot of that same flavor. Somebody wakes up to an absurd circumstance. Yeah. yeah. You see that in Metamorphosis, obviously, trial. Yeah. So here's that's a good comparison. I would say that there there's a different kind of absurdity to me in that the Kafka absurdity is so dreamlike. There's it's yes. it's just all dream logic and but like you said, it speaks to something truly real. So yeah. even though you can't, you know, we'll talk about all the fantastical elements of it. None of that, I think it's it's hard to take literally. And it really does feel like a dream. Like it feels like my dreams. But yeah. but it's always hitting on something like, okay, I know what, I, I, I feel this emotion when I'm trying to deal with customer service, um, you right. know, for uh, an airline or something like that. Right. Whereas the nose, like, it's I, I didn't, feel that yeah but there the, the the nose and i'm pretty sure we talked about this during the episode is also dreamlike in its sort mm -hmm. of in in this particular way which is he wakes up and he you know he, he doesn't know where his nose is and that's something that if it happened in real life you'd be like what the motherfuck and he's like i wonder where my nose is like that's the kind of dream logic that is yeah. that is sort of common but it's um, just like i don't have that kind of dream you know like <laughs> right um although i could see having it anyway we're talking about everything but the actual trial. Yeah, it's uh, my, my dreams aren't that I lose my nose, but I do <laughs> do lose some things. <laughs> um, I lost my sunglasses. <laughs> throughout all of the things that happened to Joseph K., the protagonist, um, they're more directly relevant to something that you could see happening in real life. Like overall, there's still this absurdity. Like for one, why doesn't he do a little more work to find out what he's accused of? Like it seems like that sort of, he just I think he does try to to do that. It's just clear nobody like he has no access to anybody who's aware of what he's accused of. But he barely does. Like and he'll proclaim his innocence, which we can get into, but he'll proclaim his innocence. And I don't think that he knows what he's proclaiming his innocence about. Right. Right. That's um sounds like something a guilty person. <laughs> yeah. It is almost as if he knows he's probably guilty of something, but since they won't tell him what he's being accused of, he doesn't want to give it up. Yeah, or he's guilty of something, but probably not the thing they think he's guilty of. Yeah, so in right. that sense, he's innocent. That's uh, right. Let's before we launch into it, and we are we want to take our time with this, and we'll probably go through it in some kind of order. But I wanted to get thoughts about 
how to approach interpreting a novel like The Trial. So I, I was thinking about this and then I looked up a couple of things. Uh, Walter Benjamin claimed that Kafka took all conceivable precautions against the interpretation of his of his writings. And I think, you know, part uh, of that was like, like burning some like of burning, them, <laughs> burning them. But then also, I think like that having that parable, which we'll talk about at length at the end, the parable of the law that the priest tells Joseph K is also a parable about interpretation. And yeah. it seems like there is a family of interpretation that really tries to map on every element of the of the plot and text to something like so i i came across something that says the the law or the judge is like the superego and the superego is judging and and joseph k represents the ego or and and also at times the subconscious something like that just doesn't seem um I don't know. Like that that seems reductive to me in a way that this book is telling you like 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 loud and clear not to do. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting cuz there's a temptation when you read it to find allegory. And I guess that that thing that you just read where they claim that he did everything to resist interpretation doesn't also doesn't seem right. It just seems as if Kafka but it seems like he knew that there you could view these things in any number of ways and there doesn't seem to be, to me, an attempt at making it so thematic or so allegorical that we would be able to like win the argument about what this is really about. Yeah, it's not supposed to be decoded, although some people disagree. That's my feeling is it's not supposed to be decoded in a way where this is the definitive interpretation of the trial. It's meant to be open yeah, and so here's what I'm I'm always curious about because this isn't the kind of art I've ever done and I'm not bare, barely an artist at anything. But it doesn't bother it wouldn't bother me say to know that Kafka had a very clear interpretation in mind and then he produced this. So long as I don't I never hear it. As yeah. so long as I never like this is one of one of the things that I dislike about artists when they talk about their work is that they remove my uh, interpretations just by giving their own, because then it seems authoritative and it seems like maybe I'm a sucker for having read into it. Yeah. And, I, yeah. I mean, sometimes they do say that, like they're like, I don't know if everyone's uh, overthinking this. It's really mm. just a story about a guy who loves the girl yeah. and then dies trying to save her or something like that. Right. It's like, no, it's not. I don't believe you that that's what you think about it. And you're psyched that everybody is trying to figure out what you're up to. Yeah. And, you know, because I think interpretation is a creative act um, yeah. with a lot of works and you know, that's one of the, my favorite things about the trial is you have to be creative in trying to grapple with it. And I bet if we did this, we read this again in two years and do another episode about it, we'll probably have completely different ways of understanding it. Yeah. And we've talked about this before. I don't remember what episode, how at different stages in life you might read something interpreted differently, yeah. like it hits different. He could have written it in a straightforward way. And I think the temptation there would have been for me, more to interpret it as, as a straight-up al allegory of something. But with those weird, fantastical, absurdist elements, I feel like he's he's fucking with me in, in a good way, making me look at this in a, a whole bunch of different ways. Yeah, a multiplicity of, like, even as you're reading it, yeah. it's, uh, you get this weight, like, yeah. uh, multiplicity of, like, emotions, some of right. which I don't even think we're aware of. One thing this book does that... I really, I was thinking about it. Not a lot of novels do. I, this probably should, and a lot of that is my fault. But 
I get, as I'm reading this, these images in my head almost instantly, and it feels really vivid, <laughs> and I feel like I, I, I have the emotions. Of yeah. them. Even if I don't fully understand what's going on, like the court scene in the beginning, I was like, wait, yeah. where is this? Who's there? What's going on? Yeah. Like, I still picture it. Like, it's he's constantly bringing an images or the painter's uh, little tiny room uh, yeah. with the door behind his bed. And, <laughs> yeah. like, I, I just, like, uh, that's so... Um, it's so evocative, but it's literally, it, it also has a kind of Schrodinger's cat quality to it where, you know, you see it like this, but then you also see it like this and you don't see them that way at the same time. But that's like, I think interpretively it's like that too, is that it has these kind of multiple interpretations, fruitful interpretations going on at the same time. Yeah, there's, there is that evocative nature is something I definitely felt like and it's sort of what I was trying to allude to is reading this feels like you're living out something in your yeah, life, yeah. even though it has nothing to do literally um, with anything you've experienced. Man, it's a talent to make the reader feel something when what yeah. they're describing is some like little attic room from the early 1900s in what was Czechoslovakia or whatever, you know, like yeah. that's. It's, yeah, but I can smell the room, yeah, you know, exactly. like and when the air is stifling as it often is, like yeah. I feel like. I'm like not breathing yep. as well. I, I'm not sure what other novelists, even Dostoevsky, I loved Dostoevsky, but I don't, for some of the scenes, I don't really have a great sense of like the space, you know, yeah. and the environment. And even though all of this is dreamlike and, you know, sometimes just impossible, right. often impossible, it still just gives me these uh, really vivid and visceral right. kinds of pictures yeah. in my head. Today's episode is sponsored, as usual, by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Dave, we were just asked by a listener, um, how do you find the best therapist? I mean, what's the way of going about it? How do you, uh, you know, because a lot of times you can you can be in a, a therapeutic relationship and it just doesn't go anywhere and it's like, okay, where do I turn next? And I remember you answered something that's relevant to this spot. Yeah, you know, in a small town uh, like Ithaca, it's kind of easy to feel frustrated because if you go to a therapist and they don't work out, there's just not that many therapists around. And uh, the truth is, with something like BetterHelp, we have all of these options that we never had before. So you know, give your therapist a good chance to like build a relationship. But if it doesn't work, there's hundreds of other therapists that you can choose from. So uh, whatever it is that you're feeling, I think a solution like BetterHelp might work. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people don't realize that physical symptoms like headaches, teeth grinding, and even digestive issues can be indicators of stress. And let's not forget about doom scrolling, sleeping too little, sleeping too much, under eating, and overeating. I think I do all of... <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I think that perfectly describes me. <laughs> I do all of those except undereating and sleeping too much. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I definitely teeth grind, though. Yeah, um, Stress can show up in all sorts of ways. I mean, we just had a, just an unbelievable uh, time in Costa Rica, but because of that, a lot of things that should have been on the front burner got pushed to the back burner, and right now, <laughs> oh my God, I am grinding. Uh, yeah, and so here's a reminder to take care of yourself. 
Maybe do less and maybe try some therapy. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. And it's much more affordable than in-person therapy so you can try a bunch of people and find the one that you like. So just give it a try and see if online therapy can help lower your stress. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp and Very Bad Wizards listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash VBW. So you just go to betterhelp, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash VBW to get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com. Thanks to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. Yeah, so can we talk broadly about just the experience that Joseph K is going through? So he's arrested, um, but not told why he's arrested. And the book is him basically trying to deal with the fact that he's been accused of something of which he knows not what. And this is what I really, what really gets me, like what, what I really feel. There's always something just out of reach. There's some knowledge or there's some procedure or there's some person who he's supposed to be talking to, but that he can't quite get a clear answer. And he's working hard, it seems, to do all the right things to the point that his his normal job as a chief officer at the bank starts suffering because all he can think about is this trial. When they arrest him, though, they do tell him, you're not going to prison or anything. He's just been arrested and he just has to sort of wait out like what's going to happen? He ha- there's no timeline. There's no, like, he's summoned once to court, but it's that feeling of almost knowing of like always being just shy of the inside info that you might need. Um, yeah. that is so powerful to me. Yeah, no, that's a good and very dreamlike. Mm-hmm. That's that mm-hmm. kind of anxiety dream yeah. of the thing that you, that you want either to know or to happen is just out of reach. Yeah. And if you could just, but now you can't get your pants on properly or <laughs> right, you can't exactly. you know like and yeah. that's the and and then by the time you get your pants on it's gone but there's some new thing and right. uh, yeah i mean so he, he's he's woken up in the morning told he's arrested by people who say they have no idea what the charge is it's not clear that anybody who he comes into contact with knows what he's accused of that there's just this right. idea that he has been accused and that in most cases when people are accused they are convicted and, <laughs> and, and, and found guilty um but he never really finds out and and like and maybe this is you alluded to this earlier he, he almost he gives up even trying to find out what it is he's yeah. accused accused of early on because i think there are unlike the things that you're talking about there are so many barriers it seems to finding out what he's accused of that like that just seems to pie in the sky for him uh, like he starts to focus more on immediate tasks right over the course of it and and even you know we even get a sense that he is uh the, the first task that he needs is to submit a petition petition for what who knows right right it's unclear and but but he is working on it you know yeah he's working on a petition he has a lawyer that uh he may or may not have submitted a petition (laughs) uh on his behalf but again it's not clear what the petitions do and often people will say oh yeah petitions don't do anything anyway uh even though you know he had pinned all his hopes on this petition not knowing what it is yeah And, and what's very funny about the book is two things i think first his just attitude towards everything which i would say start 
out being kind of haughty and indignant <laughs> yeah. and kind of arrogant and thinking like he's toying with the people that are arresting him and then slowly getting all his self-confidence and 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 that kind of righteous indignation kind of drained out of him and even though and, and it's not like he'll never say something along those lines but he just doesn't have the heart to really pursue it anymore yeah and all, over the course of the novel there's a bunch of people who offer help well that's yeah the other part that i was going to say is that not only is his information hard to come by random ass people seem yeah. to know about mm -hmm. about it and seem to know more than he does and so like the desperation that uh, i could feel that you might have if somebody you know for instance one of the merchants that uh he does business with as, at his bank tells him that he's heard about his you know about his trial one of the things that he's worried about is like the the president and vice president of the bank, um, knowing that he's been arrested. So he's not really saying anything about it, even though at his arrest, three bank employees. Right. Um, and this merchant says, just basically makes it known that he knows that he's been arrested. And he's like, how did you know? And he, it's not That's my it's, business. Yeah. And it's also not <laughs> just that, that other people know it's that other, like seemingly less important people than him know yeah right yeah, like right. just random ass like and not only does he know that but he knows a guy who can help him <laughs> if he wants the help but it's also somebody that might hurt him at his job and so yeah. um and then yeah so so there's a series of 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 men that offer help but turn out to be just like you know further sources of frustration and agony and just you know alienation from his own trial and yeah. then uh and then there are women that he comes across and this is a another dreamlike element of it there's all of a sudden he'll be in the room and there'll be a woman or he'll be in the court and there'll be a woman and the woman will already you know she's kind of throwing herself at him and he feels like he loves her but yeah. that, that never gets consummated and uh, often ends in rage and jealousy um, <laughs> right i mean sort of more like just irritation and pique um, well yeah, yeah it's very weird like he has these like mini mini affairs um, with yeah. women who he's never met, but he encounters in his capacity as a defendant. Yeah. And there's even a, you know, a conversation where somebody tries to make it clear why this is happening to him. That is why he's having women kind of throw themselves at him. And they're like, well, there's something about being a defendant that makes you hotter. Yeah. <laughs> like, right. yeah. uh, so uh, to all the single men out there. <laughs> get arrested. <laughs> get arrested in a, in a bewildering way. And then ultimately, people stop helping him. And in fact, the the Italian that he meets at the at the in the beginning of the last chapter turns out is somebody who is taking him to, or at least enabling his ultimate conviction. And is is he like yeah? Is I, he? I don't know. Yeah. Well, why didn't he show up at the cathedral? Yeah, I guess so. Like he could have been. Uh, you know, was the president in on it? Like yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. It is funny, and this is another absurdist element that he thought the president and vice president wouldn't know. And for all intents and purposes, it doesn't seem like they do know. But they given that care, like yeah. random people seem to know about it, almost nobody doesn't know about it in the novel. Yeah, yeah. There's yeah. so much that I, that I want to talk about. Maybe we should start going through it. Here, I just want want to say one thing. One of the aspects of this that is, again, so frustrating is that there seems to be an entire legal system that is shadow. Like yeah. it's it's not the regular courts and trials. It's not a public thing. The number of people who know about it and who have interacted with it, it seems astounding. It seems like he's never heard about it. He's a 30-year-old man and he's never heard about it until he gets arrested. Yeah. But there are entire groups of people whose whole life is devotion to this legal system. Right. And like 
there are courts in like the slums, you know, (laughs) in attics in in the slums. And yeah. And then there are this kind of shadowy high higher courts. Yeah. But those are it's not totally clear, like who knows them, if anybody knows them, they seem to issue final verdicts but they don't there's no records of their final yeah. verdict and nobody and no like justification is yeah. no legal it is the law is this opaque yeah. bureaucracy and yet it has just so many people <laughs> yeah. ordinary people um are uh, like intimately connected like the judges just walk over uh the painter's head every morning yeah so yeah they're they're both like totally inaccessible but also like in the walls uh, exactly. And he's only now becoming aware that this whole other world exists and uh, is sort of be- bewildered by it. And then there are these, like you say, supposed higher courts. So every official that he interacts with, even the lawyers and the judges, turns out the lawyer is not really the high lawyer, like he's the petty lawyer. And it turns out like even the judges who have these portraits painted of them, everybody knows they're actually the lower judges. Right. And so there is this whole shadow high court, but I don't think we ever see once like an actual person who is part of the higher uh, secret group. It really feels like a secret society is being. Yeah, Yeah, it seems like a secret society, or if you take it in another direction, like deities, like gods. Exactly, exactly. Um, Yeah. There's a strict hierarchy, like there's demigods. and Yeah. yeah. That's, I think, definitely it's hard to ignore that possibility if you're coming up with interpretations. So, yeah, do you want to go through it? Um, So he's woken up. In the morning on his 30th birthday. Remember how long ago that was? Your 30th birthday. (laughs) Just a little tiny bit longer than it was for you. (laughs) You want to read the opening sentence? Sure. It's it's one of the more famous opening sentences. And and as we said, there are different translations. Um, But someone must have slandered Joseph K. For one morning, without having done anything wrong, he was arrested. What a great way to start. And and he knows something's up because his, he doesn't get breakfast. Yeah. And instead, there are these two officers who are telling him that he's under arrest. And when he asks for breakfast, they all, they all kind of laugh. And this is where, like, this is the first, like, dreamlike element for me is, like, he has to be, like, jumping out of bed and pulling up his trousers <laughs> while he's trying to figure out what's going on. And, it and you know, that takes a while. And... He's he's acting. This is you know, the the first part. He's acting pretty arrogant about. Yeah, he's indignant. You know, he's like, "Who yeah. are you? How dare you? I'll, wait till Frog Grobach hears about this." <laughs> exactly, <laughs> uh, because they're interrogating him or inspecting him in not in his own room, yeah. but in the room of somebody else who's staying at this lo- uh, lodging house. Right, which is uh, always a funny old timey thing. Like, did lots of people live in this way? Like, there's just uh, one landlady, and they all. Everybody lives in a different room and the landlady cooks them breakfast or whatever. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah. For single people. I kind of like that. Um, and he and he honestly doesn't know if it's a joke. Yeah. So uh, he, he, he hypothesizes has, that it is. And then he has to question, should I play along with the joke or yeah. should I get really mad and kind of force them? I don't want to seem like I'm a, I have no sense of humor. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Am uh, I being punked? And because it's his 30th birthday, he thinks, oh, maybe that this is what they're doing for, yeah. for like my birthday. Like maybe I should laugh along for a bit. Another dreamlike element is when he's looking for his uh, ID papers, which he thinks, oh, well, this I'll just give them my ID and that'll settle that. But all he can find is his bicycle license. (laughs) (laughs) I missed that, I think. Oh, here are my advocate. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And then I'd say the first real indication that you have to take seriously some possibility that he's guilty is 
that he's like, I can't believe they just left me in my room when I could so easily kill myself. Yeah. You know? Like, yeah. And it's like, well, why would you do that? And he does say, well, that would be so irrational that even if I wanted to kill myself, <laughs> right. I wouldn't do it. But um, yeah, that's no, the exactly, first thing exactly, that yeah. makes you think, wait a minute, what's, what is going on? Right. And whenever he does try to ask the question of the people brought to arrest him, he's just told very matter-of-factly, uh, that's not our job. Our only job is to arrest you. We don't know anything. Early on, you know, they talk about the law. This is the law that is apparently condemning him. The law as an institution, as a set of guidelines, as a society. Yeah. The law is capitalized. Um, and and so there's always an appeal to the law. Um, that's the authority that is. But they don't know. Right. And they're it's like, it's the law. Yeah. I mean, clearly this is something real and serious, but we have no idea what it is. Right. And then this is a point where one of the guards says, well, uh, so you say you're innocent. Uh, do you know the law? And he's like, no, I don't know the law he's like see he claims he's innocent but he doesn't even know the law but they also don't know the law like right. <laughs> um so there is a little bit of a cat and mouse but not much of one and in the end they're uh they just let him go yeah and he's sort of surprised he's like all right i'm under arrest take take me away and they're like oh no you just gotta go to work he's yeah. like what yeah just go to work don't worry we'll find like we'll find you yeah here's what i wanted to ask you because this is also part of what uh, i can relate to is a microcosm if somebody very close to you, say your wife said, Tamara, I know what you did. You know, and I know that you're guilty of something. My mind would start racing through all sorts of things yeah. that I have done or that I possibly could have done that might be misinterpreted or that. Uh, totally. So, so it's, it's a relatable feeling that you might not feel so confident in your um, insistent that you're in insistence that you're innocent. And his insistence is even he knows he's just, I think, fronting. Like he's putting up a front. Right. But at the same time, I think he has no clue. It's not like he killed the person or something <laughs> right, like right, that. Right, and, right, he's right. and he's just like, I mean, I suppose right. you could think that. Maybe we should talk just briefly from the start. Like, what do you think on the question of his guilt? Is he guilty? Is he guilty in a way that any of us isn't guilty? Right. I thought at times in the book that his behavior might be characteristic of somebody who might have done something. Say like... Like a small embezzlement or something that, yeah. that he, he feels like he might, there might be something on him. Um, but throughout, I did get more of a feeling that like he's guilty in as much as we're all guilty. <laughs> yeah. And I think the, the question of his guilt probably isn't of a crime. It's more, yeah, this kind of vague, well, we are guilty. And, and I don't yeah. know what exactly it is about him, but he can be pretty accusatory and he can jump to conclusions and make judgments about other people in a way, you know, that that's being done to him. And so maybe there's something about his judgmentalness. Maybe there's something about his his attitude towards women. He clearly, you know, I think the dreamy aspects of this really focus on the sexual. And so I think like he feels guilty sexually in, uh, maybe yeah. in some deep, deep ways. Okay. So he is, they tell him you're free to go work. And he says, how can I go to the bank if I'm under arrest? Oh, I see. Said the inspector who was already at the door. You've misunderstood me. You're under arrest, certainly, but that's not meant to keep you from carrying on your profession, nor are you to be hindered in the course of your ordinary life. Then being under arrest isn't so bad, said Kay, approaching the inspector. I never said it was, he replied. <laughs> right. Well, you're the one who seems to be all huffy and puffy about this. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and this starts off what I find is greatly anxiety inducing, which is 
from that from this point on, it's clear that he's not in any control over the legal proceedings. He doesn't, you know, he he is told basically, you'll expect something. Who knows what? It might be years. Like throughout the book, he learns that some people have been sort of their trial, quote unquote, has gone on for years. Sometimes it's short. Nope. It's unclear what happens when you're sentenced. Everything is up in the air. And that's really what's so existential to me about this. Nothing is promised. You never know. Like it might come to a swift end in a year. It might in 10 years or. You might have cancer right now and you don't know it. Exactly. You know, like anything. I think it is like having this kind of illness that you're uh, vaguely aware of, but you're not totally sure of what the actual nature of the illness is. And it might be fine or it might kill you exactly and you don't know you just uh don't know i mean that's another kind of mapping interpretation that it represents kafka's tuberculosis or something like that but maybe not so fruitful either no Um, you've unlocked it that's 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 it the whole thing sorry (laughs) let's wrap this up that's that's why he had trouble breathing in those little out of rooms (laughs) join us next time on very bad wizards okay so so uh, then he has to have a, a discussion, right? Uh, this is now moving on to chapter two with uh, his landlady yeah. and and another lodger named Frau Burstner. Uh, sorry for my German. Frau. Fraulein Burstner. Whose room he was interrogated in and they had kind of messed up the pictures, orders of her pictures. Yeah. And so he feels the need, even though it's late at night, it's like 1130 <laughs> at night. He feels the need to apologize to her. So weird, right? Like, you, I guess I, I guess he's he's into her a little bit. But we also learned something about him that he has a girlfriend. Yeah, Elsa, Elsa which we, who never- we just never hear about again. Well, oh, well, we hear we, about her, yeah. but we don't. Um, right. He, he kind of almost uses her to get over the hurt when one of the kind of slutty <laughs> uh, nurses um, ends up, you know, like also liking somebody yeah. uh, or also liking somebody else. Yeah. I, it, it also read like a, I had a, a Canadian girlfriend over the summer or whatever. Like, really, is there an Elsa? <laughs> yeah. No, totally. Right. He certainly talks about her, but nobody else refers to her. Yeah, does he have an Elsa? Is a very good question, actually. Um, so I, I like the scene with the uh, landlady. This is another kind of element that the, the the book has, which is he always feels like he can get something from someone emotionally, and so just like he always thinks he can find out about the trial, he also thinks he'll be able to have some sort of emotional connection that will be helpful to for his mindset. And also that's out of reach. So at first he really wants the landlady to believe in his innocence. Yeah. And she does, but then immediately is just realized, just gets deflated as like, oh, this is meaningless to have that, you know, have her believe in my innocence <laughs> right. is, is so worthless. And so like he doesn't get the kind of emotional fulfillment, I guess. It's or not, satisfaction. Uh, yeah, that, that he craved and that he thought he might get. And so he just goes on to the next person, which I think is here is Fraulein Burstner. But oh, here's what I was going to ask you. They have a little bit of a conversation about uh, uh, Fraulein Burstner. And, uh, cause it's late at night and she's not there yet. Right. And, uh, so there's some illusion made about how young women shouldn't be single women shouldn't be out so late at night. And, um, for the landlady makes some allusion to like, yes, this is bad behavior. And he gets mad and says, no, no, I didn't mean it that way. He is. He's also, also kind of, uh, 
getting people into trouble. And and uh, Fraulein Bursner, and, and what's funny is he kind of protests her innocence, but then when she uh, shuns his advances, yeah. he kind of says, like, well, why are you home so late? Yeah. You know, so he immediately accuses her in just the way that he was so mad that the landlady was. <laughs> yeah, he's like super he incelly with her. Like, she makes it very clear that she wants him to leave his apartment or her room, right? Yeah. And he's... But he's also super into it. He's like, like, okay, it is true that they were in her room yeah. um, for that the initial part of the of the hearing when he got arrested, and it is true that some of her photographs were moved out of place. But the landlady had said, "Look, we fix everything. Everything's clean." But he feels this insistent, and when he's in her apartment, he wants to actually act it out. Yeah, it's right. so weird. He's like getting energized, like, like "Okay, uh, let me move your nightstand to show you how it was here." Yeah. Oh, I've forgotten the inspector. Like, who's <laughs> yeah. going to play the inspector? Yeah. <laughs> And she's, you know, she's good humored about it, but also yeah. tired. She's clearly come back from like, she's had a night out and she's yeah. tired and she wants to go to bed, but she's humoring him. Um, yeah. And then it does get a little rapey <laughs> uh, after, after right. that. I mean, there's no sex, but he does, he kind of forcibly kisses her. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like on, like on her neck, it says that he kissed her on the neck right at her throat and left his lips there for a long time. <laughs> And then he falls asleep like a baby very quickly, yeah. which was weird given... Before falling asleep, he reflected briefly on his conduct. He was pleased with it, <laughs> but was surprised he didn't feel even more pleased. He was seriously concerned on Fraulein Burstner's behalf because of the cat. So then he gets... Uh, he hears that his, his inquiries... Yeah, he gets a telephone call. Yeah, yeah. He just gets a telephone call that says it's going to take place the following Sunday and that Sundays is when it's going to take place. So then he kind of gets dressed up right for it, but he nobody tells him where it is. Yeah, that's the another weird dream. dreamlike thing. Like he's <laughs> he just has to show up. They don't like I don't even know if he knows at what time. Yeah, they just tell him it's going to take place on Sunday and that's it. And yeah. yet he kind of, he walks around. He, I guess he has some sense of where the court yeah. would be. And then, yeah, I mean, this is all just very surreal at this point. Yeah. How do you picture the actual area of the court? It does The yeah. outside or the? Just, yeah, well, it's, it's a lot. Yeah, the outside first. Yeah, I was picturing it as like, you know, like the poor part of an old city with a lot of people and tenement housing kind of with the courtyards and so maybe like almost like apartment buildings with court like a courtyard uh surrounding a courtyard because there does seem like there's a courtyard in it a lot of stairs that you can go up to get to different rooms and apartments yeah i admit i had trouble i i, I had trouble following the description of some of these places and i didn't know whether that was intentional or whether i'm just spatially badly like i can't well no because i don't think it makes sense yeah. like the 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 lot like i say i get a picture of it yeah. and i bet we might have different pictures and probably they're equally like well suited to the text but like i, I think there's key details left out and i think there's kind of logically impossible yeah, details and there are changes and there are changes yeah. constantly yeah. um so here's just a sample 
Kay turned to the stairs to find the room for the inquiry, and he has no idea what room it is, or even if he's in the right place, but then paused as he saw three different staircases in the courtyard, in addition to the first one. Moreover, a small passage at the other end of the courtyard seemed to lead to a second courtyard. He was annoyed that they hadn't described the location of the room more precisely. He was certainly being treated with a strange carelessness or indifference, a point he intended to make loud and clearly. <laughs> yeah. Then he went up the first set of stairs. After all, his mind playing with the memory of the remark the guard Wilhelm had made that the court was attracted by guilt from which it actually followed that the room for the inquiry would be would have to be located off <laughs> whatever stairway Kay chanced to choose yeah what does that mean so that is he just saying he's guilty so uh, I don't know but but he does just get to the right building he goes up the right staircase and he even creates this this excuse like uh, i feel weird not a place trying to find a court here so i'm just going to ask if there is a, a painter carpenter. a house paint, uh, carpenter, carpenter yeah yeah um and so he just goes around asking whether or not this this carpenter lives there and finally one of the people just like oh yeah come in and then it's and then all of a sudden court and then it's a court proceedings which again how do you picture this like it, it's it's I guess indoors somewhere, but there's a lot of people there. Yeah, a and... ton of people. It seems like there are uh, almost bleachers because this is the passage that really, yeah. uh, there's a gallery of people. Um, only the people in the gallery continued making comments. They seemed, as far as one could tell, in the semi-darkness, haze and dust overhead. Also very dreamy to me. Like in yeah. some of my bad dreams, yeah, yeah. it's hard for me. Like it's kind of dusk and I can't really see. Yeah. Um, they seemed to be dressed more shabbily than those below. So they're in the nosebleeds. Some of them had brought along cushions that they placed between their heads and the roof of the hall so as to not rub themselves raw. So like they're in like the nosebleeds, but the roof is like pushing right up against their head yeah. so they need cushions. Why it are seems they like they live in this general area. Yeah. When he's looking through, like he's constantly looking through doors to find his proceedings and he'll just find somebody like holding a baby um, and making dinner <laughs> right. or, right. you know, like right. cleaning they're or washing, whatever. Yeah. Washing clothes. It's I, I read it as they kind of live there, I, either as a part of the court or just like there's no real distinction between the court and these people and, and their jobs. Right. There is, uh, I guess the reason I was picturing tenements is because of this passage. Uh, but Julius Strauss, which, uh, where it was supposedly located, so I guess they gave him the name of a street, and at the top of which Kay paused for a moment, was flanked on both sides by almost completely identical buildings, tall gray apartment houses inhabited by the poor. Yeah, and it's like, do all these people, are all they all in on the fact that there are these court proceedings that go on in their neighborhood? They seem to be. And yeah. some of them, like the usher and the usher's wife clearly work for the court. Yeah. But then a lot of these people don't work for the court. And um, yeah, and this is where Kay is probably at his haughtiest. Yes, right. Which might have actually, if there is a logic to this all, like the, the speech that he gives in front of the inquiry, in front of the court, um, is so arrogant that if there's logic to it, that might have been a really bad move. Yeah, so here's just a sample of, of, some, of what he says. What has happened to me, Case continued somewhat more quietly than before and constantly searching the faces of those in the front row, which made his speech seem slightly disjointed. What has happened to me is merely a single case and as such of no particular consequence, since I don't take it very seriously. But it is typical of the proceedings being brought against many people. I speak for them, not for myself. <laughs> so he's trying to maintain his dignity, his sense of superiority, 
superiority yeah. uh, in the face of just people who he can't read. Like he can't read whether the crowd is on his side or yeah, against him. Yeah, I think him, at some point they start cheering and he thinks that it's for him, but, but it turns out that it wasn't at all. Or we just don't know. Like, and he, yeah, and he, and it's more like we're in his head and he fluctuates in terms of thinking whether they're for or yeah. against him. Right. Um, you know, but, there's yeah. a there's a point where uh, he, the judge is leafing through a, the magistrate, the examining magistrate is leafing through a notebook and says, okay, so you're a house painter? Yeah. And so he's like, no, I'm a, I'm the chief financial officer of a large bank. And so this makes him angry. It's like, this is, I think yeah. one of the things that sets him off, like, this is how you like, you don't even, your notes aren't even right. And at one point he tries to snatch the notebook that the, the judge was leafing through. Um, and he does grab it, but he doesn't see what's in it. And then later on we see what was, we, we see what's in it. Yeah. <laughs> which is just really a great, great, just pornography. It's just porn. <laughs> The judges had for it reminds me of Lebowski when that guy is like writing the yeah, <laughs> exactly. I bet, and I wonder if that was almost an omen. I know, yeah. So I'm referring to the scene in the Big Lebowski when what's the name of the pornographer house guy, the guy. But anyway, he's. It seems like he's writing a really important secret message from a phone, and he was just drawing a dick. Yeah. So he thinks these are the law books where I'll find out something crucial about my case, and That's it's just right. this naked man and woman <laughs> on a couch. <laughs> Uh, and he in order to even get those that those that notebook he he like really he flirted hard with the the wife of the court usher only to find out that there was nothing yeah but yeah this episode of very bad wizards is brought to you by the i am bio podcast where do biotechnology politics patients and our planet all intersect find out by listening to the i am bio podcast I Am Bio brings you powerful stories of biotechnology breakthroughs, the people they help, and the global problems they solve. This spring, I Am Bio dives into today's important issues, such as what are the biggest threats to our planet's water supply? What are the latest Alzheimer's research, research findings? And how is biotech addressing the addiction crisis? Speaking of uh, Kratom. Yeah, exactly. This is, we should connect these two crossover event exactly the podcast is hosted by dr michelle mcmurray heath president and ceo of the biotechnology innovation organization a medical doctor and molecular immunologist by training md phd fancy dr mcmurray heath has spent her career helping patients benefit from cutting edge innovations if you're looking for a place to start i uh, have a episode recommendation i just listened to the episode on the banana and the problem of bananas nearly getting wiped out, possibly getting wiped out because they're all clones and the potential solutions that we might have uh, via biotechnology to save our beloved Cavendish banana. So get answers on how biotechnology is changing our world. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and we'll have a link in show notes um, to the I Am Bio podcast. Our thanks to the I Am Bio podcast for supporting this episode of Very Bad Wizards. All right, so that's chapter four. Uh, the other thing he says is like, once he feels like he's lost the crowd, he kind of turns on them and then again tries to put himself above everybody by saying, uh, you know, like I know you're to the judge. I know you're signaling them. Just be open about yeah, how you're signaling yeah. them to uh, right because he saw him make some movement yeah. to somebody else. But then, like the the proceedings end because of like a domestic dispute between the usher and the usher's wife, and yeah. so then he just goes back. Yeah, it's yeah. incredible. Um, there's just no there's no order to this. Like 
Um, there is also just a description of the people in the crowd. Um, the faces that surround, I'm quoting now, the faces that surrounded him, tiny black eyes darted about, cheeks drooped like those of drunken men. The long beards were stiff and scraggly. And when they pulled on them, it seemed as if they were merely forming claws, not pulling beards. There's an image, this is hardly worth mentioning, but there's the very first episode of Star Trek The Next Generation is critically panned. But the scene is of a trial that Picard is put under and the rest of the crew. Um, and there is just a rabble of crowd yelling and he has absolutely no idea what he's put, being put on trial for. At, has now, now reading this, it has to be like that, that, like that confusion, the crowd yelling non-contingently cheering or booing right. and, and you not knowing what you're accused of. Or even if they're paying attention. Or even if they're paying attention. It, like, it seems really plausible to me that at the end of this, maybe he wasn't even in a court. Like he was just talking to some old guy. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, there are a few things that make it seem like they know who he is, but yeah. not really. Yeah. Chapter four opens. And this is again, maybe telling he doesn't get any notification to come the following Sunday, yeah. but he says, it says when the expected notification had not arrived by Saturday evening, he took it as an implicit summons to appear again in the same building at the same time. Yeah. Uh, so right. again, like, why is he going? I think this is where the, another arc is him feeling in control exactly. was, and yeah. starting to lose control and start, you know, that's, uh, this is another case where he wants, he gets to decide when they have the proceedings. So he thinks that's right. That's right. But no, they're not happening and they didn't call him. And, and he uh, goes to the same room and rather than find that hall, which in my head was big, like a big hall full of people is just a living room. Yeah. <laughs> and again, like absurd, like dreamy. Yeah, like how, how is it how the living that, room? Like how could it fit all those people and now be a living room? Yeah. And in fact, the, the woman who had been the woman who had um, caused the commotion uh, or had been the cause of the commotion that ended the trial uh, says she's the wife of the usher. And, uh, yeah, for the for the proceedings, we just they use our living room and we just move the furniture to the sides. Like, right. Yeah, that's another way that the law just bleeds into the into everyday yeah, life. Right. Like we'll get another example of that in the flogging chapter. But like the yeah, um, you know, like there's residential life, there's professional life, and there's the law. And it seems like the law is just it's intertwined in them, like the red room in Twin Peaks. It's like a, another dimension of the, these other areas, these right. other spaces. That's right. Yeah. 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 So she says, we live here rent free, but we have to move our furniture out on days when the court is in session. I like that. There are little ex explanations, you <laughs> yeah, know, yeah, like right. the painter in the bed. It's like, you know, uh, it's completely, it's not a satisfying explanation by any means. It's like, <laughs> right. well, still, how did they fit all those people? Like, why do you accept that? Yes, so many questions you would ask, like yeah. if you were in, in Kay's place. Right, but he never follows up. But his biggest question is, well, the, the living room furniture thing doesn't surprise him. What surprised him is that she's married. Yeah. <laughs> because at the end of uh, the previous, you know, during the during the actual uh, trial, she had, like there had been a guy essentially hooking up with her. in, And so now that she sees that she's actually married to another guy that was there, the court usher, he's, he's surprised at this. Turns out that husband is kind of a cuck. <laughs> yeah. So this is another arc that you see repeated a couple of times where a woman just throws herself at him and he yeah. feels kind of a lust for her, like, yeah. kind of like sudden lust for the woman and kind of feels like, oh, again, it's like 
this will bring me satisfaction and everything is going well. But then the woman also has another person who he believes, Joseph K believes that he is superior to this other person. Yeah. So in this case, it's a law, it's just a, a law, law student. student. Yeah. And yet the woman goes off with the student and then he turns on the woman. Exactly. This is exactly like what happens to yeah. Joseph K is like he, he gets help. He thinks, he gets like, oh, this is like, it's like sexy time. Yeah. Uh, and then, no, it's like unconsummated. And he gets jealous and kind of furious. Right. And that he's being, you know, treated like this uh, for an inferior. Exactly. Um, I just have to read that when he finally gets the, the notebook that he's trying to get, the, that the magistrate has. Kay opened the book on top and an indecent picture was revealed. A man and a woman were sitting naked on a divan. The obscene intention of the artist was obvious, but his ineptitude was so great that at the end there was nothing to be seen but a man and a woman emerging far too corporeally from the picture, sitting rigidly upright and due to the poor perspective, turning toward each other quite awkwardly. I love that. It's porn, but it was just poorly drawn porn. Apparently Kafka had an interest in pornography. So yeah. that's one way we're like Kafka. <laughs> he's, he's a human being. So he has the usher comes back and she went off. She goes off with the law student, apparently to the magistrate. But like he carries her. Right. Is that the one where like the yeah. law student just like literally carries her because she's been summoned by the magistrate? And here's where, and this is where he starts getting feeling very weak and the air is stifling yeah. and he has to get out of there and he has to get help to the exit. Um, just to get some fresh air. But he really, this is where the first time you see him totally deflated and weak, just yeah. weak and vulnerable. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Again, like you were saying, it's sort of a visceral description of being like, he, he doesn't know what's causing all of a sudden his deep physical weakness, but he's also ashamed of it. Right. Like he's he, right. he he doesn't know what's going on. Like, why am I why am I so weak? But and he needs to be. This is out. like uh, me in Vancouver at the meetup. Uh, <laughs> Were you ashamed? I, like, yeah, I wasn't. I wasn't particularly proud of like passing out from eating too much, <laughs> too many edibles. Having, uh, but uh, yeah. And also I was just like, oh, and you just feel like, oh, my God, I can't really stand up right now. I might go down. That's okay. how he feels. I carried you like the law student carried uh, yeah. uh, I carried you to the Uber. No, the usher. Uh, the usher. Um, so yeah, uh, this is the description of him starting to feel physically uh, uh, unwell. Kay sat down immediately and propped his elbows on the arms of the chair for better support. You're a little dizzy, aren't you? She asked him. Her face was now quite near. It bore the severe expression some young women have precisely in the bloom of youth. Don't worry, she said. There's nothing unusual about that here. Almost everyone has an attack like this the first time. You're here for the first time? Well, you see then, it's nothing at all unusual. The sun beats down on the attic beams, and the hot wood makes the air terribly thick and stifling. Um, on days when the traffic of involved parties is heavy, you can hardly breathe. That just felt like, uh, yeah. like to me, like life, the stiflingness of life. Like when there's just a lot of people around and you're under yeah. stress, it really is like you can't breathe. Yeah, you have all these responsibilities and yeah. all these kind of, it just seems completely overwhelming yeah. and like your chest, it's like caving in on your chest. Right, exactly. And it's just so vivid, like uh, that just oppressiveness and kind of heat and bad air of a place, but yeah. then also just feeling like life, like as you say, uh, metaphorically, that the, the, just life is closing on, in on you yeah. in a way that is just not sustainable for you. Yeah, and I like how you were describing about like sort of the mood from control to loss of control. This is the first time he needs to, he needs to humble himself and ask them to help him physically move. And it it did 
strike me as just something like a you know a small version of life like the the older you get the weaker you get and you start needing help like you're you're haughty in your youth and by the time life has had its way with you <laughs> you just need someone to help you get down the stairs so you can get some pressure yeah i mean it is having a you know my dad who was very old when he died and just watching those last 10 years, it does kind of symbolize that it is something we're all headed for and it's, it's demeaning. Yeah. Yeah. There, um, I believe this is what it's called in in the Erickson stages of life. There's toward the end, he he referred to it as I think generativity versus despair, um, where you really, you don't want to give in. You don't, you, you still want to be able to do things. You still want to have that independence. There are old people who handle it well, though. Yeah. And then there are old people who are fighting every yeah. last step of the way. Like, the, like people idea. who want to continue driving when they're 95 years old. <laughs> right. And they just yeah. kill eight people. <laughs> Fucking old people. <laughs> I like that descent into loss of control. And I, I think maybe we can end with the floggers sort of represent something new. Um, in his, like, not only is he, lo- is he losing control and hasn't learned anything useful, but now like his actions have affected these other people in ways that he didn't could never have predicted and like he still like his last real desire for control is to like stop them from being flogged like he really does think that he can persuade the flogger yeah. to stop doing it and, and even tries to to pay them off all right well let's let's start to wrap up this episode as predicted i think this definitely needs to go to two-parter and we need to do a lot of analysis but you know in case some listeners are doing a read-along or something like that we're about to get to the chapter called flogger both of us had read this before but a long time ago so you know at this point how did you feel where what what was this text up to this point you know what what are the themes and do you, do you think that changed by the time you got to the end or it, did it just sort of complete the arc that you suspected it would at this point yeah so okay up to this point what we've discussed about about case starting off energetically um and vehemently de- you know proclaiming innocence and then trying to do what he wants to do given that i had forgotten most of the of the book um i just wasn't clear whether you know there the, the sense that I got of futile resist, futile but active resistance, the tone shifts, and I didn't I didn't know whether it was going to or not. Like it, I, all I really remember was that this book was about a frustrated man who had like this hanging over his head. But I think it does subtly shift in this this later part, and it does get darker, and and the kind of loss of control is deeper i don't know yeah and actually you said you brought up the flogger as an example so actually now i see why it might be worth talking about because i think maybe there's a good breaking point after this chapter so as as you said the in the flogger chapter he's now starting not to just get himself into trouble but other people he's interacted with and two people who came to arrest him he goes into he, he's in his office and and there's uh, he opens up a junk room and there they are and there is a flogger that's going to whip them and the reason they're going to whip him is because k complained about them at the trial yeah at the proceedings right. in his indignant speech where he was yeah. saying like you know i don't know who you guys are or how you carry yourselves but i even had these two guards come in and eat my breakfast right and, yeah. uh, and try to take my undergarments 
and and he tries to be magnanimous about it because yeah. he wants to. He's still clinging to that. I'm I'm in the right. I'm I'm a kind of morally righteous uh, party here, and so he's he says it's not their fault. It's the system's fault. Right. Part. It's the larger system. But he's not able to get them off. And in fact, when he tries to bribe the flogger, the flogger is like, "No, you'll probably just get me flogged next." <laughs> That's right. That's right. There is something you alluded earlier to the the bureaucratic feel of this book, and it does seem like lesson learned. One, what you said about his actions actually having consequences now for other people. It's not just about him. But two, when those guys were saying, this is just our job, it really was. It's sort of like, you know, bitching about customer service and getting somebody fired when they were just, all they were doing was, was fall, like what doing were. what they were supposed to be doing. Like, you know, he was being, yeah. b- being but, that kind of customer. But you can't, and this is the what's so frustrating about those situations is the person you're really mad at, you can't, you can't yell touch. at, you can't yeah. touch, you can't, they won't, they'll never even know that you're mad at them. And so you have to, you have to take it out on something. It feels like, yeah. because it's just so frustrating and right. you know, like you're not going to, it's not like that you're going to reach the CEO of Verizon or something like exactly. that and, and exactly. tell them your fucking uh, company is just like so poorly run. Like that's just, you, you can't go anywhere near that. And the only, and they put so many barriers in between, between them and you that like that's this helpless situation yes it's a true lack of power and you yeah. break up Verizon that's exactly what I was thinking was being on the phone with Bank of America yeah. and being so frustrated where and like I don't want to take it out on the person because right. I know that they're just doing their job but I also know this thing runs so deep that there's no sh- what can I say like I'm no longer going to give you my business they don't give a yeah. fuck yeah. and this is K realizing this is much deeper than I thought like not only do I not have control over whether these guys arrest me, uh, like they, they don't have control over it. The yeah. flogger doesn't have control over it. Right. Um, and he never quite learns how deep it goes. Right. Yeah. And, and, and just as we never know how exactly. deep these things go, yeah. you know, like I think it could be a metaphor for government, you know, yeah. and like it could be a metaphor for something like the deep state where mm-hmm. there's this idea that, you know, even the president who is kind of the public face of what the government is doing. But yeah. there's this shadow, shadowy organizations behind that that um, make it inaccessible. But really, even the president or your your state Congress people like yeah. those people are also like, yeah. you know, and- you can write them angry letters about, you know, voting for some, you know, new atrocious like Texas bill that they just did, but they don't give a fuck. Right. And they don't, they won't know about it. And, and sometimes they can't, they can't do anything. And it is, it does remind me of the feeling like when I was younger, uh, the feeling I had toward authority was like, why don't you just do something about it? And now in like the small authority positions that I have, sometimes a student will, will say, why doesn't Cornell do this for instance? Yeah. Or like, why don't, like, as if I can do anything. And I'm like, no, you don't understand. Right. There's these committees. And then there's actually behind the committees, there's like a a literal corporation that's a board of trustees that have money. They decide those things. The people on that board of trustees probably feel like, well, it's not just me. It's like, it's like every, you know, there's a whole board. So I can't just single handedly do anything. The president says, I can't. The board has to do something. And it's that it's just the nature of, of hierarchy in a complex society that I think leaves us all kind of alienated. Yes. Even if we have some amounts of power. Yeah, exactly. In fact, now I think there is just an easy mapping of Joseph K. and real life, which is a person getting denied tenure. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> but no real good explanation for why or that what. happens. Yeah, yeah. It's no, no explanation why. Yeah, um, you yeah. know this vlogger scene. Can I just say uh, is uh, so surreal because they're in his <laughs> bank. Like for no reason, in a junk like room in, the, in a yeah. junk room in the bank. He hears these noises as, as he's like leaving for the day. <laughs> he's yeah. Leaving for the day, and it really—that's the point. That's the part where I—I I thought this more than anything else I read reminds me of Synecdoche, uh, New York, the Charlie Kaufman movie, because that's the kind. Like all of a sudden, the scene will change in a yeah. dreamlike way. Like, wait, what? They're in leather. They're like in these leather garments. <laughs> and he goes back the next day, and they're still there. <laughs> <laughs> they're still like so it yeah. really like i mean it's been surreal the whole time yeah. but now and, and it's another example of shit's just like surreal. the <laughs> shit getting surreal the that's title for the <laughs> um the um another example of like the court business being just like superimposed on everyday right. life that's like right. in the bank in the it's just like they're in the walls they reach they can even though you don't know who they are yeah. and there's no way to get to them they're also everywhere yeah like god right Right. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, yeah, it's, it's so evocative of so many things. I will say this is a good breaking point because one shift in it, now that he's kind of lost control, he gets a little more docile. Yeah. And he's led around to people who are offering more specific help. And here you get more of a deep dive into not the details of the legal system, but the circles that everyone has to run uh, around to try to like figure out how to negotiate something that's ultimately not negotiable. That's right. That's and right. uh, so you're going to get a lot in the next in the next bit, just more of this just bewildering series of you know ways of describing how uh, Byzantine the bureaucracy of this uh, legal system is. But it's all just out of respect for the law. Respect for the law. All right. Well, we still have a ton to talk about for our next episode. So let's um, read it. Read it. <laughs> you read it between now and then, and then we'll all talk about it together, together. in two weeks. All right. Join us next time on Very Bad Wizard. Join us next time. All right. Join us next time on Very Bad Wizards. Just a very bad wizard.